says something's different today. I'm actually going to deliver the message this morning at Hilltop Community Church. And the pastor from Hilltop Community Church is with you this morning. His name is Kurt Kazorki, and he's going to deliver the message for you this morning. We are doing a joint series this five weeks up to Christmas called God With Us. We started it last week, and Kurt and I every week are doing the same sermon subject. Not the same words, but we're taking the same passages and bringing our own distinctiveness to it. And we thought, since we're doing a joint service, on Christmas morning, we, we actually made a video already. I told you about it last week. And the two churches got together, and Micah from Hilltop and Elena from our church got together and put an incredible video for you guys together. You're going to love it. But Kurt and I thought, well, before that video goes out, we should swap pulpits so Hilltop can get to know who I am, and you guys can get to know Kurt. Kurt's an incredible guy. He's become a good friend. He loves his family. He loves the people of God. And above all, he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, please welcome him as he comes up to teach you about what it means to have God with us. <laughs> have a great service. Well, hey, thanks for the warm welcome. Um, I was going to actually share, I didn't know he made that video, and so I was going to mostly say what he just said, the Christmas collaboration between Hilltop and Cornerstone Community Church. Uh, it was interesting. I found out that the musicians, while they were making that, um, they, they kind of mashed up our two names, and they were calling us Corntop. Um, so you can think about that as, as the video is playing Christmas morning. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, and then uh, just a brief introduction about who I am. Again, my name is Kirk Itzorki. Um I've been in pastoral ministry full-time for uh, December 9th will mark 10 years. So I've been doing this about 10 years. I've been in the lead position at Hilltop coming up on three years. Um, and uh, my wife and I, we've been together since 2004. We were married in 2004. So what's that make us? 19, 18 years? 18 years we've been together. Um, we have six kids, three of which are biological, three of which were uh, adoptive. And uh, so we've kind of, our family doubled about five years ago. We had some good friends. Their mom was, uh, our good friend Stacy passed away from cancer. Um, and then uh, their boys were kind of left without parents. And so those three boys became our three boys. And that's been our life, kind of learning what it is to bring three new people into our family. And um, it's been a learning experience. It's been a really good thing. It's been a challenging thing. But that's kind of a little bit about us. We also have, um, we love dogs. We have two golden doodles, Hoover and Eden. And we just uh, went through the process of seeing them go through. Uh, we, have, we have six puppies in the house right now. Um, and so it's a lot of fun watching these puppies grow up, uh, six little golden doodle puppies, and uh, we're just absolutely loving doing that. Um, that. That's a little picture of our family, a very busy house, a lot of fun in our house, um, and uh, tons of grace being passed from one person to another. Uh, this morning, what I'm going to do for us is uh, we're going to look primarily at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, but then we're also going to incorporate a little bit from Ephesians, um, a little bit from a psalm, and a little bit from Revelation. Now, if you, don't, if you know the story of the Bible, like the plot line of the Bible goes something like this, creation, right? God created us in love. And so you can kind of like picture a heart, like God created us in love, and we're going to look at he created us in his image. And then the other thing that happened right after the creation in love is we have the fall, the sin and rebellion of mankind. So you have a heart and then an X sort of being this sin. And then the rest of the Bible is kind of leading us through the process of understanding the redemption story, okay? So God is going to buy us back with the blood of his son. He's actually going to pay the consequences of our sin and our rebellion. And with Jesus' shed blood, he's going to redeem us. He's going to purchase us out of slavery 
to sin and back into his family. So you have creation, fall, and then redemption. You could kind of picture the cross. And then the other part of the Bible, the, the biblical plot line, is restoration. God promises that Jesus is going to return and he's going to restore or consummate things to what they were in the Garden of Eden. He's going to go through that process of renewing all things. And so you have being created in love. We have the sin and rebellion. You have the redemption story of Jesus uh, buying us back with his shed blood. And then you have a restoration of all things that we look forward to. Uh, we enjoy some of that restoration now as God's children, don't we? We are restored into his family. We are made new. He's given us a new heart. Um, we can live in eternal life, right? Jesus says in John 17 that this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and the Son whom he sent. Like you can experience eternal life now. And that's a cool thing because God is with us, he cares about us, and we can live that way now. So maybe you've heard that before, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. If you haven't, kind of get those four things down. You can kind of sum up the whole Bible in that way, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But then maybe you've heard it and you go, okay, I know that, what difference does it make? What difference does it make that I know the plot line of the Bible? And the first thing is that in order to spot a fake, you have to know what the real thing is. And so before I worked for the church, I worked in recreation as a program manager, and then I worked in banks for a while. And when I first started working in banks, one of the things that they do is they teach us to spot fraudulent bills, counterfeit bills. And so you go through a process of training where they, you know, there'll be hundreds of bills in the room and they'll have you go through the process of feeling them. And all of a sudden you're like, well, hold on a second, this one doesn't feel the same. You hold it up to the light, you look at it, and you go, this, this is counterfeit, this is fake. It doesn't have the watermark, it doesn't have the little strip in it. And then as time goes by, as you handle bills more and more, you'd have one come across your desk and immediately you go, oh, something's wrong here. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things that we have to be able to do as Christians is we need to, we need to know the truth so that we can spot the counterfeit so that we can spot the fake. And so that's one of the reasons why it's important to know that biblical plot line. Um, the other one is that we can't act as God's, wit God's witnesses if we don't know what to share. So if we don't know what to share, then how could we act as a witness? If we don't understand the plot line and how it's transformed us, then how is that going to enable us to be able to then share that with somebody else? So we need to know it to be able to spot the fake. Um, to recognize the pitfalls within our own lives, but then also to see where maybe somebody that we love or that we care about is falling for the counterfeit and be able to share with them the truth. But I think most importantly, uh, the biblical plot line is the truth of reality. It is the logos, right? The word made flesh is what we understand Jesus to be. He is the ultimate revelation of what reality truly is. And so we want to live in reality, right? We don't want to live in a land of make-believe. We want to live in reality. And so we need to know the truth and be able to spot what's fake and stand up for God and then live a life that makes a difference. So what's the foundation of this? And, and if you guys, there's a handout there for you. It kind of has the verses on it. But what's the foundation of this? Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then let us make God in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, made them male and female. He blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So we recognize that when God made us, he made us in the imago Dei. He made us in the image of God, both male and female. And because he made us in the image of God, we think, feel, and do things that no other creature does. 
As humans, we, we think thoughts that other creatures don't think. We feel feelings that other creatures don't feel. And we take actions that other creatures don't take. God's made us in his image. He's put us in a position to, to rule. But he's also put us in a position like my dogs don't have deep thoughts about morality. They, they, they just want to know what's for, for lunch, right? Um, they, don't, they don't think about what's ethical or right. They just live by their impulses. And we could live that way too, right? We could live in a way where we just act on our impulses and do what feels good. It's kind of the mantra of our culture, isn't it? That we would do, you do you and feel what, you know, do what feels right to you. But God is calling us to think higher than that. He's calling us to process our emotions at a different level than just the animals do. And he's calling us to take actions that are bigger than just animals would take. And what's he say? He wants us to live in his image, to be fruitful, multiply, um, Subdue the earth and fill it. That's a pretty interesting command, right? You don't see, like, groups of animals building cities. You don't see, it's not, it's not what happens. So God's made us different. We're a different form of creature. Um, and he's put us in a position to, to rule and to do so in such a way that honors him and brings blessing across the earth. That's what the image of God is about. If we are in the image of God and we have been remade, given this new heart, and we're living as God intends us to live, we're going to find ourselves being a blessing across the earth wherever God takes us. That's what Christians in the church should be. They should be this place of grace and blessing, forgiveness, restoration, um, the message of redemption, reaching and caring for people. And that's what God has called us to do. Psalm 8 says it this way, and, and we should marvel that we have this relationship with God um, the psalmist says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? It's like as though we, we look at the world and we see what God has done. Um, even when the puppies were born, it was just this amazing process to watch life come into the, into the world, right? And just this, and it's fragile too. We ended, up, we ended up losing one of those seven puppies and it was like we bonded with it. We tried to save it. We did everything we could and it hurt. And because it hurt, we know that, some, that things are not the way that they should be. We know that there's brokenness. But when we see creation, even just driving up here this morning, watching the snow fall on the trees and just being in awe of what, the beauty of what God has created, it's really amazing to remember that God knows the thoughts that you're thinking right now. He knows the dreams that you had last night. He knows the plans that you're making for the future. He knows the intimate details of your life, and he cares about us. And he wants us to walk with him through all of those things, the thoughts that we have, the emotions that we're processing, the choices that we make. He longs to care for our souls. We should marvel at the relationship that God has with us. And so when you think about that, do you, do you ever feel like you were created for more than this world has to offer? And that's, you probably have, and that's because we were. We were created for more than this current world has to offer. Um, do you ever feel like something's missing? If you do, it's probably because it is. And there's this God that we're, we're searching for, we're longing for. And so what, what is missing, and that's where we look at this next point, is that we had an unhindered relationship with God, but that something got in the way. And so Genesis 2, we see that God's relationship with us was personal. Um, he had personal touch on us, and he gave us life. Uh, Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. 
that the Hebrew word there, he breathed into our nostrils, the, the neshama. The idea that the rabbis had there was that God breathed a soul into us, that we are the one creature that has an eternal soul. Um, and we're unique in that way. And then it says that God planted a garden of Eden in the east, and there he placed man in it that he had formed. And so he takes man and he puts him in this place of paradise. And so God's relationship with us was one where he gives us life, and it was one of personal touch. And then our relationship with him, we'll see, is based on trust and honor. So Genesis 2, 15 and 17 says, Then the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so what's that relationship about? A mean God saying, Don't touch that? Or is it a loving, caring God who's saying, I have what's best for you. I want you to trust me and honor me. And that's what our relationship with God is about. It's where we trust him and we honor him, right? And so you can't, he can't be the God of our life if we don't honor him. If we make the decisions in his place, then he's not acting as God. We're trying to take his place. And so we have this relationship with God. It's, it's personal, personal touch from God. It's based on trust and honor. And can I tell you that if you're in Christ, that relationship is true now. God's personal touch is in your life. And we then respond to him by trusting him and honoring him and allowing him to lead us. But if we don't have that, if we don't have that close, intimate relationship with God that's based on trust and honor, um, it's sort of like having cake without frosting. My daughter Cora loves to bake. Um, and recently we had some folks over for dinner and she made this really nice uh, bundt cake and uh, they were getting ready to serve it and they said, Do you, it, it didn't have any frosting on it. And I was like, the bundt cake looks good, but it'd be way better with frosting. And so they got in the kitchen and I don't know if this was me just like pushing too far, but they did. They went in and they made a little frosting and they put it over to the bundt cake and as I took that first bite, I was like, this is what it's supposed to taste like. If we didn't have the frosting, it would have been just a little, it would have been good, but not all the way there. And so we recognize that like life without God, it could be deceiving us into thinking that we're good, that we're fine, but life without him, we know something's missing. Um, without him, it's not complete. We're not everything that we could possibly want and have. And so what happens to us in when we live our life without God is it's far worse than just being bland. What humanity does is we try to create our own frosting, so to speak, right? We try to come up with our own recipe to make ourselves complete. And this is where the consequences of sin come in. And so the effects of sin, one of the first things that we see with the effects of sin is that Adam and Eve, right, after the sin happens in Genesis 3, what, what happens? God walks in the garden and they're afraid. They're afraid of God. And so they are living in this place where rather, rather than having a healthy fear of him, trust and honor, now they're afraid of him. See, there's a difference there. To live in fear of God is to say he is holy, he is just, he is worthy. I'm going to honor him and trust him with the choices that I make. To live afraid of God is to know that there's distance between you and him because there's a broken relationship. And so that's the next thing that happens is they live afraid of God rather than with the healthy fear of him. 
And then there's separation. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, determining for himself what is right and what is wrong, he must not reach out and take, tree, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed a cherubim, a powerful angel, with a flaming sword, whirling a whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. And so all of a sudden we have this block where we can't experience life as it's intended to be. Um, because of our rebellion, because of our decision to choose what's right and wrong for ourselves, there's something in the way between us and God. And so there's a separation. And then if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, what we see in that passage is it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. Some, some uh, translations say the sons of disobedience. It's almost as though our family name like, I would be Kurt Disobedient. Like, that was my last name. I was, uh, it also says that we were children of wrath. Like, my middle name might have been Kurt, a child of wrath who is disobedient. Like, I am in the wrong family, and I need a new name, right? That's what's going on because of sin. That's what's happening because of this. Instead of living in closeness with God, we find ourselves living in death and deception, Right? We don't have life as it's intended to be. We're living in the wrong family. We need a new father. We need a heavenly father. And what Jesus has done for us is he steps in and he actually makes it so that we can be a part of God's family. He redeems us with his blood and he buys us back. And so that brokenness that we feel, that lack of life, that even as Christians we can live in a state of spiritual deception where we don't have the fullness of God. We're living for the things of this world. We're living by the impulses of our flesh just like the animals would. Instead of processing at a higher level, instead of saying, the Spirit of God, I'm experiencing this emotion. I'm experiencing anger. Do you know it's okay to experience anger? Like, that's all right. Jesus experienced anger, but he did it in a holy way. Uh, our anger doesn't accomplish God's, God's purposes. And so I don't want to live out anger in my own strength, but instead I want to say, God, help me process this anger so that it can bring about life instead of destruction. Because that's what our anger does. It brings destruction instead of life. It brings death instead of life. And you could say that for any emotion. Maybe you're feeling uh, anxiety. Maybe, maybe you have periods of depression in your life. And you, so instead of processing that on your own and finding it bringing death in your life, you say, God, I want to experience depression by trusting you. I want to go through a, a series, a, a period of my life of anxiety, but I want to do it trusting you. Because on the other side of this depression or anxiety, I want you to transform me and I want to experience life. In fact, God, will you help me experience life in the midst of anxiety? Right? Isn't that what God calls us to? Not that uh, Jesus, he, he tells us that we're going to have peace, but not peace the way that the world describes it. Uh, you know, it's not just sitting by a pool in the sun, but it's actually being in the middle of the ocean and the waves are crashing around us and we're able to sleep on the cushion of the boat because we know who the captain is, right? And so we want to live in this way. We want to live in that place. And right from the beginning in Genesis 3.15, God promised that this would happen. The word is proto-evangelion. So it's the first 
gospel, uh, the first telling of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. And there's a process of like some curses going on in there, but then there's also a promise in 3.15. It says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, part of the curse, and between you and her offspring, speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan. He will strike your head, one of the offspring from Eve will strike your head and you will strike him on the heel. So the first telling of the gospel of a savior, of a redeemer who would overcome the evil that has been brought into this world through deception and us following in this rebellion against God is right at the beginning. God promises that there's going to be someone who comes from the line of Eve who is going to crush the serpent's head, Satan, but he's going to take a fatal bite on himself. And that leads us to Jesus' death on the cross. But the beginning of the process of redeeming us was right from the get-go. Um, a lot of times people read the Bible and they won't see God's grace in the Old Testament. It just feels pretty heavy-handed. But God's grace has always been there. He has always reached out to us with mercy, uh, withholding what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is we're in a position where we deserve punishment, but God withholds it. Grace is, you totally don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And God has been doing that from the get-go. Being merciful to us, withholding punishment, and being gracious, giving us what we don't deserve. And we still live in that relationship with God because there's nobody here who is righteous on their own account. We are all righteous because of what Christ has done for us. It is given to us. It's imputed on us. He takes, it's as though, like, if you were to look at my bank account, it's not that hot. But, like, it's like Bill Gates took his bank account and said, this is Kurt's bank account. But instead of, his resources are still finite. God takes his infinite resources and says, these are your resources too. I'm going to give you everything. God is giving you everything that he has. That's his grace. In fact, Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He doesn't say some or most. He says every spiritual blessing. That means in terms of what the wealth that truly matters, I have everything that the creator has because he's given it to me. Not because I earned it, but because he longs to bless. Because he loves to share. To make his children content in him. And so that's what happens as he describes this the rest of the way in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, withholding what we deserve, and because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were once dead in our trespasses. We were once completely spiritual dead, spiritually dead, but God has made us alive. We are saved by grace, God giving us what we don't deserve. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he may display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness, through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, right? So his riches are immeasurable. How much does God have? I couldn't tell you, but, but there's no end to it. His, his grace is inexhaustible. He always has enough. Uh, one of the things that I've recently uh, come to realize is I can only be in one place at one time. Just recently. And I think the reason why is because there's been multiple occasions where I wanted to be two places at the same time. When you have six kids, one, one of them's doing something and you're like, I really want to be at that, but I have to be at work. Or you have six kids and two of them are doing something that you'd love to be at at the same time. I can't be both places at the same time. 
Um, Sarah Lutheran had a, had a need within their theology department last year, the school that's right across from us. And so I taught two classes, um, got to know some of the students, and I really, really connected with them, really loved these students. And uh, I went back in there last week to help with some mock interviews uh, for a speech class. And the students were like, we, we miss you, Kurt. We wish you were here. And I told them, if there were two of me, I would be. Um, but there's on, I can only be in one place at one time. This is really neat. You know, God is right here right now. He's down the hill in Carson City. He's across the world in, uh, we, you know, in, uh, we have missionaries that work in, uh, in Kenya. We have missionaries that work in the Ukraine. We have mission, like these people that we support. God is in all of those places and then some. And even to the far ends of the universe, he's there. Right, what's the psalmist say? I can't hide from you. Even if I went to the depths of Sheol, hell, or the heights of heaven, I could never get away from your presence. He's always with us. His immeasurable grace, his presence. Verse 8, for you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift. Um, everyone has faith. The question is, what is the object of your faith? What is it or who is it that you trust? Everyone trusts or has faith in something. The question is, can it save you? Does it have immeasurable riches? Is it right here and at the ends of the universe? He's pretty worthy, isn't he? He is the right one to place our faith in. It is God's gift, not of works, so that no one can boast. And then he says this line, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, works which God prepared, prepared ahead of time for us to do. I love that phrase. Um, there, there's a couple parts of it. One is that God has said to each and every one of us, you are mine, you're unique, and you're a masterpiece. Most of the time we think of ourselves probably not as a masterpiece. We see the flaws, we see the failures. God says, no, you're my masterpiece. I'm shaping you into an image of Jesus Christ. I'm going to cause you to think, speak, and act like Jesus does in his marriage, uh, in your workplace. All these different things, all these different places, all these different relationships that you have, you are, we are, an individual masterpiece of God, the image of God, right back to the beginning, the image of God there to bring truth and life and blessing. The other part that I love about that is the good works he's prepared ahead of time for us to do. I'm not really sure what he wants me to do this afternoon, but he already has it laid out. I don't really know what he holds for me in the next year, five years, 10 years, 15, 20. I'm not exactly sure what he wants me to do, but I know every morning that I wake up, God has good works for me to do. And so if I'll live in connection with him, Jesus says in John 15, if I'll abide, if I'll remain connected to the vine, then his fruit, his kind of life is going to come out of me, and that is the good work. The good work is I trust him. And as I trust him, everything changes. And so there's this process of being redeemed. The restoration portion we see in some ways right now, but the end restoration is Revelation. So in Revelation chapter 21, uh, in verses 1 through 4, we see the effects of sin are removed. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, if you love sailing, this isn't a reference to the literal sea. Sea was a way that the Jewish people talked about the division between the nations. 
In other words, what he's saying is the nations are going to be, they're not going to fight the way that we do now. There's no Russia and Ukraine. There's no North Korea. These things don't exist. Um, they may still exist in their names, but they don't exist in the way that they fight with each other. There's no more sea. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And so the effects of sin will eventually be eradicated, completely wiped out after Jesus' return. And then in Revelation chapter 22, we see that there's this res that we're restored to enjoy God and his glory. Uh, Revelation 22 verse 1 says, Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city, the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were are for healing the nations and there will be no more and there will no longer be any curse the throne of God and the lamb will, will be in the city and his servants will worship him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads night will be no more people will not need light of lamp or of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever and so there's this restored joy in God where we enjoy his glory. Uh, the, the images there in Revelation chapter 22 are, are primarily out of the Old Testament. The river is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel promises uh, at the end of his book that God is going to have this river of life flow. The tree of life is on either side of the river. Uh, it, this tree is producing fruit and everyone is getting what they need for, for it for life. Uh, that's right out of Ezekiel chapter 17 as well. And so a lot of this imagery is reminding us of promises that God has made in the Old Testament. And I think that's another portion of this is that God has made promises and he's going to see them through. And isn't that what we remember at the Advent season when Jesus, when we remember Jesus' birth? That there are many, many scriptures in the Old Testament, primarily in Isaiah, that tell us about a virgin giving birth. That tell us about this coming king, this Messiah who's going to save his people from their sins. The promises to Abraham of a, a seed that would bless the entire earth comes to pass in the person of Jesus. Uh, the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 of an eternal kingdom. That there'll be one who comes from the line of David who will rule forever. That comes to pass in the person of Jesus. And so if God has made promises and fulfilled them, he'll do the same again. And so we can count on what he has laid up for us in the life to come. So Jesus, if we think about this, he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has purchased us with his inexhaustible resources. He's given us life. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us freedom. Uh, Do you know that we didn't have freedom before, knowing Jesus? There was an illusion of freedom, but we didn't have freedom. We would trick ourselves into believing that following rules brought freedom, or we would trick ourselves into believing that living out our impulses brought freedom. But both the law and the impulses of the flesh, they bring death. There's no freedom in either of those things. And so Christ has filled us from being religious rule keepers, but he's also freed us from being those who just do what our impulses are. He's bought us freedom, the liberty of following him. 
purchased us into his kingdom, made us his children, and given us the freedom to follow him. We couldn't purchase that for ourselves. He's forgiven us, but in his forgiveness, he's brought justice. And we have to realize that when Jesus went to the cross, he did something that had to be done. The cost of sin, the wages of sin are death. So what did Christ do for us? He died on our behalf and justice was secured. He then gives us his righteousness and he gives us hope. And when we talk about biblical hope, um, it's not like when you're a kid and you really hope you get a Super Nintendo for Christmas. And then you open all the presents and it's not there. Um, it's not like that. So you get a paper route and buy it yourself, right? Like that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is I know the character of God. I know the past actions of God. And because I know he's good and because I know he keeps his promises, I know he's going to bring about what he's promised within the scriptures. It's not I wonder or I think. It's I know this is who he is and he's going to do this. There's no question in my mind about it. And so this is why we worship him. This is why we celebrate Jesus' advent because he is the answer to all of our dreams. He is worthy. So let me pray and then we'll take communion together. Father, this morning we, we see the big picture of what you have done. We know that you created us in love. That your heart for us is that we would live as your image bearers. Ruling, subduing, being good stewards of everything that you've given us. Bringing blessing and life across this earth. But we were tricked. We were deceived. And instead of being those who bring life, we find ourselves in a cycle of death because of sin. And Lord Jesus, we recognize that when you died on the cross, you broke this cycle of death once and for all. You paid the consequences of sin. You redeemed us and made us your children. If we've trusted that your death on the cross secured for us life and salvation, then we are new creations. Your resurrection from the dead proves your worth and your deity. It also secures for us a new heart, a new set of desires that learn to match yours. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your advent and what you did in your first coming. We look forward to your return and the restoration of all things. We think that even now we can enjoy to some degree that restoration within our own lives as we've been adopted as your children. Help us know this big story. We were created in love. We sinned in rebellion. We fell. We're redeemed by your son's blood and we're restored into your family now and long for the full restoration of all things at Jesus' return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.